Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. For today's episode, I'm pleased to bring you the audio version of my recent live stream conversation with Harvard historian Vincent Brown. Brown is the author of the new book, Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic Slave War. It's a new history of one of the most important slave rebellions in British America, which began in 1760 on the island of Jamaica. Historians have been writing about it almost since the moment it occurred and was suppressed by British and colonial forces, but Brown's work compels us to see Tacky's Revolt as a war within a series of wars in the Atlantic world. It will help you rethink the map of 18th century slavery. I hope you enjoy the program. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our latest Washington Library Book Talk Tuesday. I'm Jim Ambusky. I lead the Center for Digital History at the Library, where I also host the podcast Conversations at the Washington Library. There you'll find over 100 episodes featuring discussions with leading scholars and educators working in the field of early American history, including most recently Villanova historian Whitney Martinko, an expert on historic real estate in early America. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Now, as it happens, I'm coming to you tonight from my home in Charlottesville, Virginia, in the shadow of Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. Virginia is a landscape shaped by slavery and the enslaved communities who labored in bondage on plantations like Mount Vernon, Monticello, and the smaller farms that surrounded these larger estates. But in the 18th century, Virginia, New York, South Carolina, and other mainland colonies with sizable enslaved populations paled in comparison to the importance profitability, and human complexity of the island of Jamaica. Jamaica was the crown jewel of the British Empire in this period. It was arguably the most important colony in British America, so much so that during the War for Independence, British authorities feared losing Jamaica and the rest of Britain's Caribbean islands more than they did the rebelling 13 of mainland colonies. And as much as the British ruling class feared French or Spanish threats to Jamaica, They also feared revolts from the enslaved population, who to them was an internal enemy. Indeed, in April 1760, enslaved men and women in St. Mary's Parish rose up against their oppressors. The beginning of an event that we often refer to as Tacky's War or Tacky's Revolt, taking its name from one of the enslaved leaders of that rebellion. But tonight, we are very fortunate to be joined by a leading historian who sheds remarkable new light on the people at the heart of this story, and the Atlantic world they lived in. It is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Vincent Brown, Charles Warren Professor of History and Professor of African and African-American Studies at Harvard University, and the author of the new book, Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic Slave War. And we're fortunate tonight to have a little bit of of late breaking news because we've just learned, and actually Professor Brown has just learned, that his book uh, has won the Phyllis Wheatley Book Award in Nonfiction Research from the Sons and Daughters of the United States Middle Passage. Professor Brown, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us this evening. Oh, thank you so much, Jim, and uh, thank you to everybody who's tuning in tonight. I hope everybody is doing as well as possible uh, in the midst of this plague. Um, My heart goes out to anybody who's had a tragedy in their family or even their extended social circle, um, and I hope that we're all going to get through this um, and come out the other side okay. Well, may I ask how you and your family are doing this time, sir? We're doing all right. Um, I always say, so far, so good. Knock on wood. Um, it's uh, you know nobody knows quite how this is going to go. It's a very serious situation, but um, things. There have not been tragedies in my immediate family, uh, and I'm grateful for that. Well, that's good to hear. Okay, Vincent. Uh, thanks again for being here. Uh, we wanted to start with a bit of uh, a groundwork and a bit of a foundation. Uh, many of our viewers tonight may have never heard of Tacky's Revolt. Would you give us a brief overview of what happened in 1760 and how we've traditionally understood this moment? Well, I mean, traditionally, we haven't thought about it a whole lot, certainly not in the context of American history. Uh, in Jamaican history, they, they know it very well. And there is, in fact, an effort um, being staged to make Tacky a national hero in Jamaica by an activist there named Derek Black X Robinson. Um, but... For the most part, we don't think about Tacky's Revolt probably as often as we should. What we need to know is that it was the largest slave revolt in the 18th century British Empire Mm -hmm. um, and the largest in the Caribbean before what became the Haitian Revolution uh, took France's 
most profitable colony away from that empire. Um, it happened in 1760 in the midst of the Seven Years' War. And in fact, it was a war within a number of other wars that were happening around the time. The Seven Years' War, first and foremost, but also was an extension of various wars among African states, mm -hmm. where you would have African states going to war with each other. And oftentimes, uh, when soldiers would get captured and enslaved, they would be sold to the Europeans. They would come to the Americas, and often they would regroup, sometimes even former enemies coming together because they spoke similar languages or worshipped similar gods. Uh, and, and then they would stage these revolts against plantation society that had the reverberations around the Atlantic world. So it was the largest revolt in the 18th century British Empire, but also a war within a series of other wars that I try to trace out over the course of the book. Well, I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit, because in the introduction you write, recognizing slave revolt as a species of warfare is the first step toward a new cartography of Atlantic slavery. And I, I think that's one of the most important lines in the book. I think it sets the foundation for much of what you say, and, and you've kind of already begun to express that here in your, in your previous answer. But I'm wondering if you could build on that a little bit and then you know, tell us a little bit more about what you set out to accomplish in writing this book. Sure. I mean, we often think of, of slave insurrections as a slave resistance to the master's authority, something that happens between masters and slaves, something that happens upon a plantation or in a single colony. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes it was recognized as war by the people who fought in these campaigns. Most famously, um, the man we know as Alaude Equiano, Gustavus Vasa, mm -hmm. who was an autobiographer in the 18th century, was himself enslaved then became a sailor in the British Royal Navy, uh, a mariner and explorer, and then a most, one of the most famous abolitionists of the late 18th century, wrote that when you make people slaves, you compel them to live with you in a state of war. Now, he wasn't just speaking metaphorically, because uh, uh, Olada Equiano had been in Jamaica in the, late, in, in the early 1770s, when the island was still reeling from the slave revolt of 1760 and the reverberations of that revolt in 1760. And what, Oba what, uh, what Equiano draws our attention to is the fact that when one sees slave revolt merely as resistance, it's just about what happens between masters and slaves, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really draw our attention to the aims of the rebels. It doesn't really refocus us beyond the plantation, beyond the household, even beyond the colony, to the larger field, the larger canvas upon which wars were fought in the 18th century. So taking Olada Equiano's assertion seriously, I wanted to see how this would look if I wrote it as a military history. Mm -hmm. And I drew upon what I knew about these African soldiers who had been enslaved and transferred to Jamaica um, and thought about what they wanted out of this campaign. Well, and thinking back to the, the ways in which we've told the story before, or maybe not thought about it enough, you know, how, how uh, have the story been told? I mean, where does the origin story, or I guess the, the foundation of the, the modern histories before your book really come from? Who are the, the major authors that are writing the narrative and, and in many ways controlling the narrative? Yeah, so to the extent we know the story, we know it through the history of the 18th century planter Edward Long, mm -hmm. who wrote a three-volume history of Jamaica that was published in 1774. And that stood as the most extensive account of Tacky's Revolt and the revolts around it um, until this book, really. So for you know more than 250 years, we've had Edward Long's account as the standard account, although there had been some scholarly articles about it before. And you know, Long was a, was a good historian for his time. He uh, collected sources. He examined them carefully. He was also uh, a brutal racist and slaveholder. And he, in fact, hated Africans, in part because he had lived through Tacky's Revolt himself and lived with the fear that was inspired by these African rebels. So despite the fact that Long left us this account that has been useful to us for some time, it's not an account that can be trusted. Uh, and so you find that there are lots of ways in which Long distorted is uh, the picture of Tacky's revolt that I've gone back and tried to correct the record for. Well, I imagine one of those uh, distortions might be that there's a simplification between the parties involved, you know, uh, the, the oppressors and the oppressed, or the, the white enslavers versus the enslaved people. But, I, you know, one of the things that your book does is it shows that this is a much more complex human society than 
previous historians or especially Long had sort of uh, discussed. And, and I wanted to talk about uh, one of those uh, groups of people that are in Jamaica and that are a product of the Atlantic world you describe. Uh, and hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, but uh, the, there was a, uh, a large proportion of enslaved people in Jamaica brought from uh, many parts of Africa, but particularly the Gold Coast. And the British called them the Coromantee people. Mm. What do we know about them? And in what ways are they, are they reflective of the, the Atlantic state of war that you're describing here? Yeah, so thanks for that question, Jim. It, it was an enormously complex uh, slave revolt, but it was also a complex society. So one tends to think of slavery merely in terms of blacks and whites, mm-hmm. or of Africans and Europeans. But in fact, just like Europeans, there were many ethnicities present among the black people, right? Mm-hmm. So one can talk about different kind of regional identities among European peoples. One can also talk about different political, ethnic, regional identities among African peoples, linguistic identities among African peoples. So the, what, the people that were known as the Coromantes generally came from um, the region of the, of the African coast called the Gold Coast, mm-hmm. which is roughly what's now Ghana. These were people who speak um, Akan, uh, Ga, and Adanme languages and Eve languages. Uh, and they were known all as Coromante, named after one particular fort called Coromantin Fort uh, on the Gold Coast that the British traded at principally uh, in the 17th century and then into the 18th century. It wasn't by the 18th century one of their most significant forts, but it became a kind of almost a product label for the people that they traded out of Africa from that port. Mm-hmm. And so when they purchased Gold Coast people in Jamaica and elsewhere in the Atlantic world, they often called them Coromantes. Now, one of the things about this region and one of the, region, one of the reasons why there was so much active slave trading going on is because the Gold Coast had been trading quite uh, actively with Europeans for quite a long time before the 18th century. And they had been caught up in the larger and expanding world of Atlantic trade in which they would often trade first gold and then slaves by the 18th century for lots of different products, including guns and firearms that they would use in wars against each other. Now, lots of these different polities had their own reasons for going to war. It wasn't always dependent on the European slave trade. But as a byproduct of those wars, they would often sell those people that were captured to the Europeans. And the Europe- that was the product the Europeans wanted. That was what they wanted most for their trade because that's how they could build up their plantations. So it's worth knowing that the, sli- the societies in which Europeans were able to establish their most profitable colonies were generally the slave societies, right? When you think about just, say, the British Americas, for example, mm-hmm. my friend uh, at Monticello, Andrew O'Shaughnessy, has a famous line in his book, uh, The Empire Divided, where he says, the British didn't have 13 colonies in the Americas. They had 26. And the most profitable of them were those colonies in the Caribbean that drew most heavily upon slave labor. And you can see that in, in, in the profitability of the plantations. You can see that in the private physical wealth that people derive from those plantations. And so there was a massive slave trade coming to those Caribbean colonies And a lot of that slave trade coming to the British Americas was coming from the Gold Coast. Now, as I said, this was a particularly war-torn region of the coast, Mm -hmm. which was beneficial to the Europeans, but which also meant that many of those people traded as slaves to the Europeans themselves had military experience. Part of that expanding and militaristic world of Atlantic trade was an expanding world of warfare in which many people had fought in various campaigns around the Atlantic world. So these people, when they came to Jamaica enslaved, had also had experience in soldiering. And some of them, as I said, regrouped and used that soldiering experience against their oppressors. So maybe we can play with that for a little bit, because I did want to ask about the ways in which warfare in Western Africa did shape the political and the martial geography of Jamaica. And we've, we've started to talk about that already. But I wonder if you could go a little bit more in, in the ways in which uh, enslaved peoples drew on their knowledge uh, of Western Africa and applied that to the Jamaican landscape in ways that enabled them uh, to carve out places of autonomy for themselves in certain circumstances, but also uh, enabled them uh, to effectively mount resistance and revolts against uh, slaveholders. 
That's a great question. Let me go back a little bit, though, to talk about my kind of general purpose for thinking geographically about this insurrection, but also how it fit within the broader world of Atlantic slavery, because this is going to get to your question about martial geography. Sure. When we think of the Americas, we tend to think of their relationship with Europe. And then, of course, we think about the enslaved Africans who came and built up the Americas. But we don't think about African political history as being part of the development of Americas. Mm-hmm. So the Americas. So what I wanted to do was make sure that we don't we don't continue to try to understand what happens in the Americas, especially in these slave societies, without also understanding something of what happened in Africa, in West Africa, where these people came from. Up to about 1800, something like two thirds to three quarters of all the people who migrated to the Americas migrated from Africa, right? So when we're talking about the colonization effort, we're talking largely about populations that had experiences in Africa. And those weren't just cultural experiences, those were also political experiences, historical experiences. Mm-hmm. So the, the, really, the key to me in writing this revolt was to say, let's think about how African history might play out in Jamaica so that we can redraw our geographical understanding of where uh, things matter in the world, what places actually uh, help to shape the Americas by adding Africa to the picture. And I was drawing upon the work of other historians like John Thornton and James Twee and Walter Rucker, who have been hacking away on this, but I wanted to really bring all of this together into this one story of Tacky's Revolt itself. Okay. So to come back to your question of how these people help us to think, rethink the martial geography of the Atlantic world, mm-hmm. we want to think about their actual itineraries through this place. What were they doing in Africa? Who did they encounter along the way? Who did they encounter when they came to Jamaica that might have reminded them of their homelands, right? That might have shaped their sense of what opportunities there were for fighting in Jamaica, The book begins with the story of a man whose African name was Apongo, uh, and he was renamed Wager after he was enslaved. Mm -hmm. Now, this man, Apongo, had been an official, probably a military official of some note on the Gold Coast. And we know from the diary of an 18th century planter, uh, uh, plantation overseer Thomas Thistlewood, that Apongo would meet with John Cope, who was the chief agent at Cape Coast Castle, which was Britain's principal fort on the Gold Coast, right? Mm -hmm. We know that John Cope was there sometime in the late 1730s and early 1740s, right? Thistlewood records in his diary that John Cope, so John Cope retires from the Gold Coast sometime around the 1740s and then sets himself up in Jamaica as a planter. Sometime after that, Apongo is himself captured, enslaved, sold to the Europeans, he ends up in Jamaica, where he again encounters John Cope. And John Cope actually lays out a tablecloth for Apongo on Sundays and treats him as a man of honor, even though he's enslaved, and insinuates to him that when your master comes back to the island and his owner is a Royal Navy sea captain in the British Royal Navy, I'll have you redeemed and sent home, right? But John Cope doesn't survive past 1756, He dies before this Royal Navy sea captain comes back to the island. And sometime between 1756 and 1760, Apongo, now renamed Wager, Mm -hmm. becomes one of the leaders of this largest slave revolt in the 18th century British Empire, right? So already when one takes his trajectory through that world seriously, we're seeing a radically different story and a radically different geography than we're accustomed to seeing when we think about slave revolt. That's what I wanted to do was to remap people's imagination of what and who matters in the world of Atlantic slavery by focusing and highlighting on African experience. Well, and could you take that a little deeper? Because one of the things that I uh, I also wanted to ask is about the ways in which these moments and these events and these interconnected threads circulating throughout the Atlantic world, you know, binding Jamaica, North America, Africa, uh, Europe, uh, England and Scotland, uh, and all these other places, they they reveal this you know this complexity. They reveal the ways in which people relate to each other, not simply in uh, the power dynamic, but there's it's a lot more complicated uh, because Jamaica not only is it has a sizable enslaved population, it also has a pretty decent uh, uh, population of free people of color mm-hmm. who have been able to carve out their autonomy 
in the central regions of the island mm-hmm. uh, through different kinds of revolts and, and even entering into different kinds of alliances with different people to achieve their ends. So can you talk about uh, the ways in which uh, that, those kinds of moments and those kinds of relationships form? Yeah, thank you. That's an important question because, you know, as a military history, Taki's revolt also winds up being a diplomatic history. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and it's a diplomatic history of various groups and various kind of fighting units in their negotiations with each other. And as part of that history, one has to pay very careful attention to the political alliances that they make. So one of the ways I pay attention to that is by situating Taki's revolt in a much longer history, not only of Jamaica, but also of the slave trade, uh, European wars uh, in and around Africa, but also in the Caribbean um, with each other. And Coromantes had been responsible, um, partly, for one of the major threats to Jamaica before Taki's revolt, and that was the Maroon Wars of the 1730s. Sure. So many of the people who became Maroons and Maroons were people who had been enslaved, freed themselves, uh, ran away often to the mountains, to, in, to, to, to areas where they could defend themselves, raided plantations. And then by the 1720s and 1730s, they were engaged in a major war with the British in which the British weren't sure they were going to be able to keep the colony, to keep the island. So what finally happened is the British sued for peace with the Maroons and signed treaties with them in 1739-1740 that granted the Maroons some of their autonomy in their mountainous enclaves. But it also required the Maroons to police future slave revolts, which in the case of Taki's revolt, they, they did. And so what you find is one can't just, again, see this as a society that's cloven between blacks and whites, but you have to look at the actual political struggles among black people and the alliances that some groups of black people make with slaveholders and the alliances that some groups of black people make with each other, with Africans from other regions of the coast, right? In Mm -hmm. order to tease out how the revolt plays out. So that diplomatic and political history became crucial to writing the military history. Well, it was one of the more fascinating parts of the book because I, you know, I was aware of the Maroon Wars. I knew that they had carved out some autonomy, but I had no idea that they were entering into these kind of diplomatic alliances and forging uh, ways that they could keep their autonomy by, you know, siding with people who, who, you know, would likely like to re-enslave them uh, if they could potentially defeat them. Uh, And they had become a formidable adversary uh, to the British colonists in that period. Uh, I want to ask you one one question here, but I wonder while we're doing it, actually, I think I see it in the screen. Can we can we bring up the image there of uh, the actual progress of the revolt uh, and see what that looks like? And, and maybe, Vincent, you can sort of walk us through the landscape that we're seeing here uh, and the progress uh, of the rebellion as it begins in uh, 1760. So what I see here is the, the map of, of the parish of St. Mary. And the revolt began um, what, what happened to be Easter Sunday, um, April 7th, in the, night of April, uh, in the morning of April 8th, <clears throat> in St. Mary Parish. And what the rebels first did after they gathered on uh, a number of plantations in St. Mary is they went to the fort, Fort Haldane, where they attacked the fort and took all the arms that they could. And then they marched up the main artery of the parish, right, attacking plantations and burning plantations along the way, right? That is when the, the British actually mobilized the, the counterinsurgency against them. And in order to do so, they mobilized the militia, they mobilized the army, and as I indicated, they called upon the Maroons. There were a series of battles that were fought across the parish of, across the parish of St. Mary, um, over the course of about nine, 10 days to two weeks. Uh, and then that revolt was largely extinguished in April. But then there was another outbreak of revolt toward the end of May. And this is the revolt led by Apongo in the parish of Westmoreland. That revolt lasted much longer, uh, consumed the entire parish and ended with a long force march all the way across the parish into the neighboring parish of St. Elizabeth and finally ended up in the parish beyond that in Clarendon before it was extinguished in January of 1761. So ultimately, this revolt lasted um, kind of nearly a year. Um, there were other kind of skirmishes even after January 1761. So one can say about 18 months over the course of which the rebels killed about 60 whites and destroyed tens of thousands of pounds worth of property. 
And Edward Long, the historian I mentioned earlier, estimated that the total cost uh, to the island was about a quarter of a million pounds sterling. Wow. Well, and as we're thinking about this, uh, this landscape of warfare, could we talk a little bit about the, the tactics that both sides are using against each other? Uh, because as we've sort of established already, a lot of what uh, makes for success, for, at least for the, the rebels in the initial phases of their revolt, is that they are drawing on their military experience from uh, before their enslavement and, and in Africa. So can we talk a little bit about how the two sides uh, face each other in combat and the ways in which uh, the Coromanche uh, the people were able to mobilize their uh, martial experience in other realms to, to achieve a victory against uh, the yeah. slaveholders? Yes. Yeah, so what you find among the African rebels uh, are skirmishing tactics where they're kind of, you know, they're they're using the fact that um, they are moving quickly, that mm-hmm. they're not standing in kind of large pitch battles and fixed engagements as the British Army was accustomed to doing, um, but hitting and running. Right. And then another tactic would be the social tactic, which would be going to various plantations and get, again, doing that political diplomatic work of trying to find as many allies as they could um, by persuasion, through cajoling, even through threats to try and convince people that it was in their interest to go with the rebellion and not to stay with the planters. Right. Now, you didn't have to convince people to hate the planters. But you did have to convince them not to fear the reprisals mm-hmm. planters would meet out, which were bloody and brutal to the extreme. That I described them in the book, but I don't want to describe them here. Right. Um, you had to convince them that joining the rebellion was going to be in their interest and that the rebellion was going to win. So that's one of the reasons why you had to move so fast, burn so many plantations as a signal that the rebellion was actually taking the colony so that people would fear the planters, mm-hmm. thus they would fear being on the wrong side of the rebels. Now, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Edward Long, who was one of the, the original historians of this story. And that makes me think of a question that I like to ask uh, my students and, and, of course, other colleagues who are writing on the subject of slavery. Um, writing about slavery and the history of enslaved communities is, is very difficult in many ways because we don't often have sources produced by the enslaved people themselves. So, how do we recover the voices of the enslaved people so that we can, uh, as you as you do in this book, bring their story to light and and bring them rightly into uh, their own agency? Yeah. Well, often, Jim, we can't recover their voices, right? Because if we don't have um, texts produced by them, we don't have pamphlets that they wrote declaring their war aims. Um, it's hard to say you're recovering their voices. One can uh, look at oral histories. And really kind of shape the intuition about how people might have thought of these circumstances um, through oral history. And so Kenneth Bilby, uh, the historian of the Jamaican Maroons, um, has done fantastic work um, studying the Maroons' oral history and thinking about how they might have thought, or at least how they recall those that era of slavery. But one thing one can do um, if you don't have actual sources left by the enslaved is try to read the sources of the slavers far more carefully mm. to situate them, not just to take for granted what they say and not also to dismiss what they say as only representative of their own perspective, but to understand that they're writing in a context and that that context is often created by the slave rebels around them, that they're reacting. And if one reads those sources as reactions to things that we know slaves were doing, one can say a little bit more, make, make better guesses, I think, mm-hmm. about what slaves intended, about what re- rebels were trying to do, um, and about the, the real fears of the planters that, that shaped the sources in the way they did. Oh, sure. And I know the answer to this question because I peeked in your footnotes, but could you uh, give us a sense of the different places you had to go to assemble the evidence to tell this story? Oh, sure. Well, I, I went to West Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, I also spent quite a lot of time in England and Scotland uh, at research uh, repositories there. Uh, I had done some research on in Jamaican parish vestry records, which were quite helpful. Uh, and then there were records in North America and, of course, all of our libraries. One of the best sources for me actually turned out to be the records of the British Royal Navy, uh, because they were quite careful in documenting things. So again, because I didn't have the voices of the rebels, what mm-hmm. I wanted to do was track their movements. And it was often those military sources, especially the Royal Navy sources, that allowed me to track movements around the island day by day. Wow. Um, 
And by tracking those movements, I was able to discern something about the strategic intentions of the rebels when I didn't have uh, their war aims written down. So you were able to take those Admiralty records and other naval records and, and use those to build a new map, in a sense. Yeah. Of, of yeah. This map. As I say, a new cartography, not only of the rebellion itself, but of the way that rebellion connected up histories from West Africa, from Europe, and from around the Caribbean and North America. Wow. I have one more question for you, but uh, before I uh, before I ask it, I just want to remind folks that in a, about a minute or so, uh, we'll turn it over to your questions. So get those in and get those ready. Uh, and Vincent, my final question uh, for our port of part, uh, portion of the conversation this evening is um, is talking about the legacies of this revolt for mm-hmm. the peoples in the Atlantic world. And so, and what do you see as some of the legacies for Taki's revolt or the Coromantee War for the inhabitants of the Atlantic world in the 18th and early 19th centuries? Well, two that I wrote about in the book, I think, were quite important at the time. Mm-hmm. One is, as I said, this was was Great Britain's most profitable colony in, in the Americas. <clears throat> and it happened during the Seven Years' War, which was generally a time that was difficult for the British Empire, despite the fact that they emerged from the Seven Years' War victorious. Uh, they learned a lot of things about imperial administration. They learned that colonists wouldn't always pay the full cost of their defense. Mm -hmm. They learned that colonists were restive and didn't always follow imperial dictates as the the imperial managers wanted them to. And they learned that these wars were going to be quite costly. So we know uh, from thinking about North America that the British reorganized the empire. They levied new taxes and more administrative controls that North American colonists revolted against. Right? Sure. What we don't tend to think about is that imperial administrators were also thinking about the Caribbean when they did this. Mm-hmm. And they were reading news of Tacky's revolt and its cost when they were thinking about these new imperial administrative policies that the North Americans ultimately revolted against, right? So one can talk about how Tacky's revolt fed into the larger chain of, of actions and reactions that ultimately precipitated the American Revolution, the split in the first British Empire in 1776. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. Another thing is the story of abolitionism and the abolition of the slave trade in particular. We know that slave trade abolitionism really took off after the American Revolution. We know from Christopher Brown's work, Moral Capital, that the American Revolution was a great spur to the abolitionists as people came to debate, debate slavery uh, and, its, and its sins and virtues, right? What we don't think about quite as often is how uh, abolitionism was also a security measure. And in fact, a kind of anti-immigration, xenophobic security measure, right? That many of the first high taxes uh, levied on the slave trade and, um, and initial restrictions on the slave trade were passed in part because people feared the rebellions that these Africans from war-torn parts of Africa might stage, Right. Mm-hmm. So one can look in that early period in the 1760s and then 1770s, 1770s to see some of the initial restrictions on the slave trade as being a reaction to events like Tacky's revolt as well. So it played a part in the developing campaign for abolition. That's really fascinating. And I, and I read that part of your book, particularly about abolition being a security issue. And I confess I'd never thought about that before. So thanks for changing my mind. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. All right. Uh, now is the uh, uh, the time of the evening where we see what uh, is on the audience's mind. And so uh, let's have some questions from our audience for Professor Brown. Adam would like to know, how did your background as a scholar of the African diaspora help you construct Tacky's Revolt or reconstruct Tacky's Revolt? All right. Well, hi, Adam. Thanks for your question. Uh, I really appreciate you tuning in. Um, and, and it's good to see your question here again. So this is an African diaspora project. Um, the African diaspora is concerned mostly with kind of migration and transformation across, across space. And the African diaspora in particular, with the way in which Africans who um, were expelled, uh, captured, uh, and, and transfer, transferred to the Americas over the course of the transatlantic slave trade, recreated communities for themselves. And so this, this is really a kind of a military story about the African diaspora. We have grown accustomed to thinking about the African diaspora as a cultural phenomenon. Um, I did some work earlier on in my career about the anthropologist Melville J. Herskovitz, who was one of the people who established the study of African diaspora cultural forms in U.S. universities. 
And when he began to work in the 1920s and 30s, people assumed that the slave trade and slavery had really denuded any ancestral heritage that Africans and uh, that Africans and African Americans might have, right? That by the time they got to the Americas, uh, they were cultural ciphers, right? That the slave trade had been so catastrophic, um, so destructive that they weren't able to bring anything with them. They had no cultural inheritance. Herskovitz's work was partly about demonstrating that that was not true. And in the aftermath of that work and, and the work of others, including W.B. Du Bois and uh, Sterling Stuckey and scholars who followed, we have learned that Africans, in fact, did recreate quite vibrant cultures, even under extreme circumstances, even under the most uh, kind of exaggerated kinds of oppression that one can imagine. What I'm trying to add to that picture is an understanding of how Africans brought and transformed their military experience in the Americas and how that became a factor in the political history of American slave societies, right? Which, of course, as I said, then draws our attention to the political history of African societies at the time as well. Great. Well, thank you, Adam, very much for your question. Let's see what else is on people's mind. All right. Uh, Cynthia Miller would like to know, I know this talk relates to the revolt in Jamaica. Were there other revolts, small, medium, or large, that were tried, failed, or succeeded on other islands in the Caribbean around the same time? Oh, yeah. Uh, too, many, too many for me to name you know, right now. You will know about, hopefully, the largest one uh, in the Caribbean, which was the Haitian Revolution, which took place three decades after Taki's revolt, um, which actually resulted in the creation of the state of Haiti, from what had been France's most profitable uh, colony in the Americas, really in the world. And that was a slave revolt that coincided with this, the French Revolution. And we have tended to think about that slave revolt in military terms, in part because in the final phase of the revolt, those rebels actually defeated a campaign sent by Napoleon, uh, and so defeated Napoleon in order to create the state of Haiti. That is the most famous of these revolts, and Taki's revolt, I think, was the largest before the Haitian Revolution. Great. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Terrific question. Uh, Adam would like to know, later American slave owners were very aware of rebellions in Haiti, for example. Were slave owners in the southern United States, or what would have been the southern colonies at that point, aware of Taki's revolt? Did it come to their mind when Lord Dunmore issued his proclamation uh, emancipating or offering emancipation of enslaved peoples in Virginia in 1775? That's a great question. Absolutely. Um, one of the things I mentioned in the epilogue, that I want to spoil it for you, is that even as, as late as the 19th century, people were talking about potential troublemakers in the U.S. South, in the antebellum Americas, as tackies among us. Right? Oh. So the theme continued to ring out. Brian Edwards, who was one of the planters uh, who was there at the time and wrote an early account of the rebellion um, after Long's, um, was widely read in the Americas. Um, and so uh, so people knew a lot about Tacky's Revolt from their readings of Edwards and of Long. Specifically, yes, Lord Dunmore was absolutely aware of Tacky's Revolt and of revolts in the Caribbean. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a scholar named Maria Alessandra Balatino who's written an excellent recent article on the use of black and slave soldiers uh, in the British military. And it was partly after Tacky's revolt, she shows, that the, the, that the British started to use more black soldiers in their military campaigns, far more, in fact, than the North Americans were comfortable with. And so she really kind of traces from Tacky's revolt to Lord Dunmore's pro uh, proclamation in 1774, how the North American colonists and British imperial managers were diverging on the question of whether or not it was okay to use black soldiers in your military efforts. And that was one of the things that was a big sticking point for the Virginias uh, in the 1770s. Well, that's really fascinating. So the, the kind of accommodations that, that uh, the empire was able to reach in Jamaica didn't map very neatly onto the mainland colonies then. No, not always. And I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have had that great divergence in 1776 if they had. Um, but what we haven't quite understood is the way that act activities and events in the Caribbean played a role in those kinds of decisions. Terrific. Well, thank you, Adam, very much. Great question. Uh, let's see who's next. Elizabeth would like to know, can you speak to the women involved, uh, perhaps Queen Nanny, for example? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So Queen Nanny, as you, as you know, 
was one of the most famous Maroons uh, in that first Maroon War in the 1730s. Um, but there were also women fighting throughout Jamaica in, in each of these campaigns. One of the things I found, I discovered in my research, that was probably the most surprising to me was I found a ship's manifest that named 25 captive rebels. Now, what would happen in these revolts is that the militia was far outnumbered by the enslaved population. So if they were going to fight the revolt, suppress the revolt, when they captured people, what they would do is often put them aboard a, a warship, right? Um, and so they could have them contained aboard a Royal Navy warship. And warships had to list people on their manifest whenever they took people aboard. So we have 25 names of the first rebels captured in that first outbreak of, of Tacky's Revolt in the parish of St. Mary. And as it turns out, nine of those names are women's names. Wow. Right? And it, that's about the proportion of women in the enslaved population in the parish, right? So we find women captured in the first phase of the revolt in proportion to their numbers in the population, right? Right there at the outset. So I don't know, and I don't think we can say yet exactly what roles they were playing in the revolt, but I certainly don't think that we can leave them out of the story. We can't say that they weren't part of the fighting uh, actively from the very beginning. Now, because of you know gender conventions for writing about, about uh, military affairs, we don't find them mentioned as often in the sources, but there they are. And so at least we can raise the question and look for more sources that might tell us precisely what they were doing in those revolts. Well, there's somebody's next research topic, certainly, I think. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Uh, let's see who's next. Uh, question is, I was wondering if there was a failed revolt you could mention and tell us how slaves were dealt with afterwards. Were they similar to repercussions as such as the Jacobites experienced after the battles of Culloden in 1745 in Scotland, uh, or were more rights taken from enslaved peoples? Yeah, so massive, massive reprisals, um, and in fact, reprisals not just upon the enslaved, but upon anybody who might be suspect. So one of the things that was happening uh, during the course of the revolt is that, that oftentimes the colonists would go to the towns or they would also go aboard Royal Navy warships waiting in the ports. And then the parish where the revolts were happening would essentially become a free fire zone. And anybody who was suspect at all was shot by the militia uh, or, or the army um, or even uh, sailors who were fighting alongside the militia and the army. Uh, and then there would be um, rounds and rounds and rounds of exemplary executions. So you would find kind of gallows in all of the major towns. Uh, and then I, I almost hesitate to say it. I wrote about it in the book. But, um, but, you know, people's heads displayed kind of at various plantations all over the towns. And those, those, those relics of the dead would stay up um, for years sometimes, right? Marking the landscape, um, terrifying the population. Also, uh, colonists came to suspect the, the free population, the, pop the small population of free people of color, and passed more restrictions on their activities in the wake of the revolt. So um, what you find is a society, honestly, one of the most brutal societies in the history of the world, we think, um, becoming even more brutal in the aftermath of this revolt. Sure. Well, thank you very much for your question. And actually, while we're waiting, Vincent, if I may ask, you know, I was thinking um, uh, earlier about some of the cultural values that various enslaved African peoples brought to Jamaica, and then thinking about similar slave revolts in, in the mainland colonies, particular when the United States in the 19th century, particularly, you know, Nat Turner's mm -hmm. rebellion, where religion played a powerful element in motivating uh, Nat Turner to rebellion. Where can you speak about the religious lives and religious experiences of uh, the people enslaved in Jamaica? And did that help shape or inform their intention to revolt against their slave owners? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, you find that people brought their religious practices from Africa, and then those religious practices were transforming over the course of the 18th century as Africans from different regions that worship different gods uh, came together and tried to sort out how they were going to contend spiritually with this new predicament that they were in um, with, with slave society. One of the things I tried to do to, to bring that into the story was talk about how people use their spiritual practices in order to create these kinds of alliances uh, that we find playing out over the course of the revolt. And particularly you had oath-taking 
which was administered by uh, Obeah people, Obeah men and women. And Obeah men and women were um, people who uh, practiced uh, Obeah. We can't kind of get into it what it is too much now, but it was a kind of set of spiritual healing, uh, magical, religious practices. Um, And as one of these practices, they would administer these loyalty oaths to, to potential rebels. And the loyalty oaths became a kind of convention that held people together and boosted their morale. So during the course of the revolt, the British actually captured several, several Obeah men. Uh, and that was seen to demoralize the rebels mm-hmm. when they learned that their Obeah men could be captured. Now, I don't think that that kind of religious practice was, was something unique to the enslaved and unique to the Africans. We also find the, uh, the articles of war being read out by the British, especially by the Royal Navy and the British Army, mm-hmm. over and over and over again as people went into battle. And the very first thing the articles of war do is they commit people to the Church of England, right? So yeah. we find kind of religion and religious practice girding people for battle on both sides of these conflicts. That makes total sense. Well, thank you. Okay, next question. Uh, Gregory would like to know, at the time of the revolt, was there a society of freed slaves, and did they own slaves of, the, uh, of their own? So in Jamaica, you, find, you, had the, you had very small numbers of free people of color, uh, often uh, people who had been enslaved and then were manumitted. Um, they were generally very poor, and so very few of them in 1760 actually owned much property at all, uh, and very few owned slaves. Now, as you get later into the 18th century and into the 19th century, you find uh, some people who are the children of, of planters. So they're the kind of, you know, what we would recognize now as the illegitimate unions of planter slaveholders and the enslaved, often the children of rape. But occasionally these planters would recognize, very occasionally, would recognize these children uh, and sometimes they would grant them property as bequests, right? And sometimes that property might be uh, uh, in, in enslaved persons, right? So by the kind of large, by the, by the time you have a larger um, number of free people of color in the 19th century, you do have small numbers of free people of color who are property holders and may own some slaves as well. Now in, in Saint-Domingue, that's a much bigger class of people. In Saint-Domingue, which became Haiti, that's a much bigger class of people. And in the slave revolt that became the Haitian Revolution, right, we find the free people of color, oftentimes wealthier than poor white people, right, and oftentimes they're creditors to poor white people, who want mostly a limita- the, re- the removal of racial restrictions on their, on their civil rights in the society, right? And then we find poorer people of color who really want racism, white supremacy, to be the guiding principle of society. And they would like these three people of color, even though they have more property, right, to be beneath them, right? And then you have planters of great property who own massive numbers of slaves, sometimes in alliance with those poorer white people as whites, but sometimes in alliance with those three people of color as property holders, right? And of course, the massive population of the enslaved, what they most want is freedom. So when one begins to think about the Haitian Revolution, one has to think about all those contending parties and what they want at various times out of the conflict and who they find themselves in alliance with in order to see how that conflict progresses over time. Thank you very much, Gregory. Uh, Brenda Parker would like to know, do you have any evidence of persons of uh, Caramanti recruited for use in the American Revolution War? Uh, the blackbird, she asks. So uh, again, I would I would direct you to Maria Alessandra Balatino, who's doing some amazing work on uh, on black soldiers and sailors in the British Empire. I don't know much about Coromantes specifically recruited into British military forces. We do know that in the late 18th century, the British formed the West India Regiment, mm-hmm. and many of those people were Africans who were captured uh, from slave ships. So a lot of them would have been Coromantes, a lot of them would have been from the Gold Coast, they would have been from other regions of Africa as well. Uh, And so what you find is actually the the British uh, Royal Navy uh, and the British Army becoming kind of slavers themselves in order to enhance their military forces. Wow. 
Well, thank you very much, Brenda. Great question. Let's see what we have next. Uh, Hilltown would like to know, did Tacky try to contact the Maroons and ask them to support the revolt? Ah, so that's a great question. And that's one of those mysteries that's, that's very hard to solve, but very interesting to think about. So we know in the period just before 1760, before Tacky's revolt, there were a number of small rebellions that took place across the island. And we know that there was communication across the island between various rebels. We don't have evidence that Tacky himself or even a Pongo was in touch with the Maroons and trying to get them to help. But we do know that late in the revolt, one of the major Maroon towns in a Kompong town um, did not participate in the suppression of the final phase of the revolt. There was that long march that I said, uh, you know, went from Westmoreland Parish through St. Elizabeth and into Clarendon. And it passed very close by a Kompong town. And the Kompong Maroons did not pursue the rebels, right? So it leads me to guess in the book that there may have been some kind of alliance or at least some kind of deal to allow those rebels to pass. I can't say more than that guess, but from circumstantial evidence, we do think that there was probably contact uh, among the rebels and the Maroons. That's fascinating. Thank you very much for your question. Atlanta would like to know, how would you compare this revolt to Nat Turner's rebellion? Oh, I mean, quite a quite a different kind of thing, because, you know, um, in in antebellum Virginia, you had a, a, you know, a large slave population, but nowhere near as large as you had in Jamaica, where 90 percent of the population was enslaved. You also, by that time, didn't have people coming directly from Africa. The slave trade officially ended to the United States in 1808. And even though there were slaves being traded illegally after that, you didn't have the kind of massive numbers of Africans coming in daily and yearly that you had in Jamaica in the mid 18th century. So people weren't drawing on that prior experience, that previous experience of warfare in Africa, uh, in the Southern United States. So Nat Turner's revolt is much more a revolt in its local context and I wouldn't situate that on the same kind of transatlantic canvas that I did Tacky's revolt, even though Nat Turner's revolt obviously had major implications beyond Southampton, Virginia. Great question. Thank you very much. Uh, Scarlett would like to know, from your research, how did Tacky's war influence the colonies? Did it inspire some of the colonists to become abolitionists and challenge the status quo of slavery in America? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I traced out in the wake of Tacky's revolt is, is how exile, so oftentimes people, if they weren't put to death, they were exiled from the island. So some, you know, 500 people were exiled from the island in the wake of the revolt. And I tried to trace a number of ships out uh, containing exiles, carrying exiles to where they went. Many of them went to uh, British Honduras, what's now Belize. And there was, in fact, a major rebellion, slave rebellion in Belize in, 17, in the, in the mid-1760s that probably was staged by people who had been veterans of Tacky's War. I also traced some people probably to Virginia um, in, in 1760. And while the trail goes cold and we don't know what they did in Virginia, what we can say is that they probably told the story to others and inspired others about what was possible uh, even in the most brutal slave society in the Americas and what might be possible in Virginia. Now, as I said earlier, there were many people who saw the slave trade as a security threat to the colonies. And so you find in Pennsylvania, uh, in Virginia, people passing uh, high import duties on enslaved Africans as a way of trying to limit the numbers. And in fact, in Pennsylvania, they begin to think that really the slave trade is, is kind of not something we want coming to, to the colony. And they are thinking also about these revolts in the Caribbean. And they begin to pass some of the first anti-slave trade uh, um, uh, taxes. And they begin to pass, they, they actually pass some of the first gradual emancipation laws. Terrific. Thanks so much, Scarlett. We've got time for just two more questions. Elizabeth would like to know how and how fast did news of the Jamaican revolt spread to the North American colonies, both among the settlers and among the enslaved people? Yeah. So as I alluded, I think it's, it's spread with ships and it spread as soon as as soon as ships carrying the news would arrive in various ports. 
So one of the things that happened, you know, during the Seven Years' War and during these major wars in the 18th century, trading ships would move with military convoys. And even though those military convoys were often delayed by the revolt, um, when they went out, the sailors on those ships carried news of the revolt to all the various ports they went to. And you can see in some of the uh, in some of the records where all these people, where all these different ships went. And you begin to hear accounts, to read accounts in the newspapers soon after those ships arrive in various ports. So, you know, within weeks, um, you're finding uh, accounts of Tacky's Revolt in, say, the Pennsylvania Gazette. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. And actually, I have a follow-up to your question, if I may. Uh, I was wondering about the, the ways in which knowledge of the rebellion circulated in Jamaica itself. Uh, what were the, the means by which... Uh, the rebellion was communicated amongst uh, the British, amongst the enslaved people. Uh, how did that work? Yeah. So, I mean, enslaved people often, you know, would, would communicate, you know, person to person, um, mouth to ear. Um, oftentimes, right, it was enslaved people who were doing all of the carrying work, right? So they were carrying things across the island. And they would carry stories. They would carry plans. They would hatch conspiracies um, as they were going about the course of their regular work. Um you would often find also people learning from what planters were saying at their tables. So domestic servants would learn what planters said, and then they would tell that to other people who may have been working in the field. So that's another way that news travel. Another way that news of the revolt travels is actually through <clears throat> through the kinds of um, the kinds of stories that people are are learning through the torture of captured rebels. Mm. And as it happens, um, when these rebels are captured and often taken around to the main port, uh, uh, Kingston, or to the capital Spanish town for, for trial and torture, that news and that information goes into the local newspapers. And then you find people writing that news and that information into their letters that even goes back to, goes back to, to Great Britain. I see. Well, thank you, Elizabeth, very much. And let's have our final question. Elizabeth would like to know, what was the favorite part of your research? That's a great question. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, it's the detective work. It's the trying to see if I can find out something that, that nobody knows. Um, it's following leads in the sources, kind of deep into various records that, uh, that people haven't seen. Um, that, is, that is something that really animates me and keeps me going. And then there's a part that's, you know, I can't say it's my favorite part of the research, um, it's the hardest part and the part that I think is, is the most, most worth with putting time and energy into is remembering that it's not just about my kind of geeky detective work, right? That when I'm telling this story of slavery and slave revolt, I'm telling a story that's emotionally fraught. I'm telling a story that's, that's, it's just important. I'm telling a story that's about kind of massive death and suffering on an enormous scale and to remember that just to find out the things I want to find out is, is not the, the end goal of my research. It's to tell a story in such a way that changes the way we think um, about how the Americas came to be, about what the colonies were really about, about what it took to maintain empire, and about the, the cost of war um, upon everybody, upon the Africans, upon the British, um, and how these societies you know, built up through war. And that, to me, is a tragic story. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, as I said, is kind of the most rewarding part is trying to figure out how to tell the difficult story that the history of slavery has to tell. Well, I think that's an important place to end our discussion tonight. Uh, Vincent, thank you so very much for your time this evening. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I know our audience does as well. Well, thank you, Jim. And thank you. I appreciate all the questions. Those are great questions. Sure. And I just want to thank all of you for joining us this evening. Uh, we really appreciate it as always. Do be sure to check out the library's live stream schedule, which you can, where you can watch past events, including this one, and look forward to upcoming talks. Uh, check us out on mountainvernon.org slash talks. And in fact, uh, be sure to tune in tomorrow at 7 p.m. for a book talk sponsored by the Ford Foundation. We'll be featuring the authors of the book, The Knock at the Door, Three Gold Star Families Bonded by Grief and Purpose. And next Tuesday on June the 2nd, we're going to try something completely different. Uh, at 2 p.m. in the eastern uh, United States and at 7 p.m. in the United Kingdom, 
I'll be joined by Professors Arthur Burns of King's College London and Professor Zara Anna Hanson of the University of Delaware. We'll be talking about the Georgian Papers Program, an ambitious digitization and research project centered on the papers of George III, America's Last King, and those of his family, and what we can learn about early America from manuscripts long sequestered in the Round Tower of Windsor Castle. So put on the kettle or grab your pint of lager and join us for a tea time, pub time conversation next week. And thanks as always to Jeanette Patrick and Sam Snyder for working their magic behind the scenes. And Vince, once again, thank you so much. I'm Jim Ambusky. Good night, everyone, and good luck. Be well. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hildebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.